creating better businesses with Discovery Business Insurance. Hey everyone, welcome to the Healthy Business Show brought to you by Discovery Business Insurance. In this episode, I'm joined in studio by the incendiary smart Rob Paddock, CEO of the Valencia Institute and co-founder of Get Smarter. Rob is one of the most authoritative voices on education, both globally and in South Africa. Today, we are talking about how entrepreneurs learn. Rob Paddock, so good to see you again, sir. Lovely to see you, Fred. So, I'm particularly interested in this conversation that we're about to have. And I think the topic as a broad canvas is really about how entrepreneurs learn. I mean, this is the first episode we're really looking at the sort of mindset of, of learning. And obviously, you have a particular... <laughs> Uh, resume, which which really qualifies you to talk about this. Uh, you exited, how long ago now was it, from Get Smarter? Uh, so we sold the business in July 2017. I finished up in March 2018. Okay, wow. All right. So so it's not too long ago from Get Smarter. And that was obviously over a decade's worth of real kind of sweat and tears and getting stuck into uh, to the idea of educating people around the world. And, and with hundreds of thousands of people taking your courses, you could fairly safely say that it was a success. Was there a moment when you suddenly realized, Flip, this thing is really working? I mean, did you did you at, did you recognize that this was something special at at any point, or was it just just work? You know, I'd say that especially in the early days, I don't think we recognized how lucky we were with the Get Smarter business to actually find a business model that worked and that was profitable. So, a, a bit of background context: um, my brother Sam and I started the business um, together with our parents. We were all in the mix of basically about three different businesses. There was a legal firm, there was a property business, and then there was this online education thing. And we, the online education portion of the business started growing and started growing really nicely. Um, and I think one of, the, one of the mistakes and one of the very strong pieces of advice I try to give entrepreneurs regularly is that when you find a business model that works, thank your lucky stars, knuckle down and focus. Because I'll tell you what we did. We had a, this portion of the business in online education that was working and we started thinking, oh, we're you know, quite fancy and we're quite good at this whole entrepreneurship thing. Let's start like three other businesses. <laughs> and Fred, they all failed, like all of them. Really? And it's the, the privilege that you have, the, the, the almost minute chances of making it work and when it does all come together, that's, a, that's, a, that's not something to take lightly. Yeah. So I think that it was only after the failure of those other businesses that we really recognized Jeepers, this is the business to focus on. Um, we started building out that business as we doubled down our, our attention and our activity on that business. And then we started to see the growth. You start to, a, a lot of business is in the small details. And especially as you, as you in the startup phase, seek towards, to get towards profitability, it's in the small details operationally that help you control your spend and help you on the top end to actually access new markets or realize new revenue opportunities. It takes a lot of time and attention. It's, it's tempting to think that as entrepreneurs, our role is just like the big ideas and paint the picture and let some other people do it. I, I would say that I have yet to meet an entrepreneur where that's been the case. Yeah. I think it's nice things to say in, in courses and so on. It's just not the case. It is, it is the hard attention to the detail that actually makes this business, the business work. You know, there's a certain amount of chance and luck to the fact that you're in the right place, right time with the right idea. Totally. In terms of learning, however, you have your own learning process or you had your learning process. And what did that look like? How did... What was the way that you learned different in terms of leading towards a place of being an entrepreneur? So 
I mean, I think we can have quite a practical discussion about this, but I'd almost like to take it up a layer and say, I think, or maybe down a layer, okay. and say that I think that a lot of the learning is based on something more fundamental. And I'd say that that fundamental base layer that needs to be in place for entrepreneurs is a sense of confidence and willingness to put your work out. So think about how many entrepreneurs you've met over the years who've had an idea, who've been thinking about this thing for such a long time, but have never actually taken the step to put it out to market, to get that real world feedback, to actually make yourself vulnerable and to put something out there which people might not like. And I'd say that there's a confidence in actually in actually putting your work out there that is so critical. And I believe that that's the essence of creativity. My background's actually as a musician. Yeah. Um, and I spent a lot of my, my schooling years between music and art. And I think that it's the same fundamental creative process where you conceptualize something that initially is just a thought in your head and eventually gets put out into the public domain in art that might be on a canvas or in a sculpture, in music that might be in some sort of performance. And I see entrepreneurship is no different. The confidence to take something from concept to action is massive, mm. absolutely massive. And so I think for my, I guess the first piece of advice that I regularly have for entrepreneurs is what can you do right now that could take a little idea that's sitting in your head and actually put it out into the world? Yeah. Maybe this doesn't even have to be a business yet, but maybe it's actually just in things like art, music, anything creative, write a line of poetry, share it with a few friends. It's the resilience to actually putting your work out there and dealing with the inevitable highs and lows of what comes back at you yeah. that is so fundamental to entrepreneurship. If we, if we don't have that base layer of confidence, we won't be able to make the inevitable leaps. And what I would say uh, to entrepreneurs listening to this is that the, the fear never goes away. Please don't be fooled. It's not that the fear ever di just disappears. You just get more resilient. You just get stronger in dealing with that fear. It's a huge, huge deal. Mm. On top of that, there are a lot of individual skills that, that are learned and, and certainly one of the best mechanisms for that learning is by actually putting something out there and then having to deal with it on the fly, problem solve as you go. Um, and of course, you know, as entrepreneurs, we need to surround ourselves with the, with the appropriate skills around us. Maybe you're not particularly strong operation. You need to get someone who's really, really strong with ops and project management. Maybe you're not strong financially. You need to get a really good CFO, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of technical skills that need, that need to be infused in the entrepreneurial mix, but none of it matters if you haven't fundamentally um, got that base level coverage, that base level confidence to be creative and to put something out there into the world. That's such an amazing point. I think it speaks to the fact that you hear so many people say, you know, oh, that idea was my idea way before they did it, you know, but the reality is they just didn't have the courage and uh, as you say, the confidence to to put it out and and see what happens. You ideas know, to, are free, man. Yeah, it means almost nothing. Yeah, like an for idea, sure. and it's one of the reasons why I personally believe in the value in entrepreneurial networks. Just share, share, share. Speak about what you're doing. The, the ideas themselves hold so little value. Sure. The real question is. Can you can you put that thing out there? Can you execute? Can you deliver on that idea? Totally. Can yeah. you build a team around you that can complement your skills and actually put something out to market? So what's your ninja skill then? What is the thing that you're really good at? I would say that I have a that I have a very high risk tolerance. Um, I'm I'm happy with risk. I failed a lot of times, and I'm quite comfortable in that space. And I'd say that that's a comfort that's that's been um, that's been built over time 
through almost exposure therapy. Um, I back myself to recover from the inevitable failures, from the inevitable shortcomings, from the inevitable learnings that need to emerge. That's probably the primary ninja skill. I love the term exposure therapy. That's the, that's, <laughs> oh, that's the first time I've ever heard that. That's amazing. There's something to be said about putting something out there and then analyzing the response, the market response, the the systematic uh, evolution of it, iterating and learning as you go, right? But you can't do that until you've actually been exposed to the risks, the market forces and, and you know, all of the negative feedback that you're going to get. And you need to be able to embrace that and open, open to that, right? There's no ways you'll get it right first time. Do you think your creative formative experience uh, lent to your entrepreneurial nous. I Without mean, a doubt. That, that kind of creative exposure. I mean, I, I often think of creativity, or at least I think of entrepreneurship as the single most creative endeavor that, that there is, right? I agree. Entrepreneurs are artists. I really believe that. Oh, and so great. for me, certainly um, art, music, design were foundation skills for me. Um, that that really the, the confidence to be an entrepreneur was built on top of, for sure. Right, and that creativity is so yeah. fundamental to and business. I, I think this is the this is a common misconception. I don't think those two are mutually exclusive. Yeah. You can be highly analytical, you can have hard, hard skills, and you can still be creative. Those two things can be developed in parallel. I don't think sure. necessarily that our education system often encourages that, which is another whole conversation. But For sure. I agree with you 100%. And that, that embracing of, of creativity has got to be one of the most important remits for education going forward, right? Absolutely. I mean, let's talk about then your new gig mm. because it's super exciting and it talks to a lot of this stuff. And Valencia Institute... How did it come about? Was it something that evolved from mm. from uh, Get Smarter or was it something that was incubated yeah. over time? It's certainly an idea that's been in incubation for a very long time. I've had a, a drive, I guess, off the back of my own education. I went to a very traditional school. Um, I had a very, I guess, what you could call by Saifkin standards, quite a privileged education. To a large degree, it didn't really work for me, save for an exceptional few teachers that I had. Uh, the one was a biology teacher who moved my understanding, my engagement with the subject of biology out of the classroom and into the field, onto the shorefront. Sure. I guess managed to pull a strong link between the real world application of what we were learning and the impact that that actually has and the impact that we can have on our environment and so on. And that for me was a very transformative experience because at least up until that point, most of what I was learning was highly conceptual, highly theoretical, so that I could regurgitate it under exam conditions, which is a very strange concept. When you've been out of school for a few years and been out of university for a few years, you kind of start to think like, this is kind of strange, actually. It's yeah. <laughs> quite a brutal assessment yeah. of our education, but you're so right, right? It's odd if you look at it from an alien perspective looking down. Completely. It's kind of weird. Um, and then I had an art and design teacher who was just absolutely transformative. So this art and design teacher sat with us on the very first day and said, guys, I'm not here to teach you. My job is to create an environment where you can learn to teach yourself and you can develop the confidence to be creative. And I was like, Oh, yeah, this is good. So we would, um, we had to self-organize. We would set our own projects. We would set our own marking rubrics that we would, uh, that we would peer review each other's work by. Yeah. We had to put our own project plans together where there was group work. This is at Rondebosch, right? This is at Rondebosch, yeah. Mr. Putter. Mr. Andrew Putter. Mr. Andrew Putter, just, yeah, we can name him. I, I remember hearing about him back at school. And, uh, I mean, this guy was really Total legend. Total legend. Right? And he now runs something called the Putter School, which is just a, a staggering institution. Um 
But I think one of the things that that did for me is it realized what happens when you put a sense of agency back in the hands of the students mm. and when you put purpose and passion at the center of, of the learning experience. Particularly with Andrew Putter, when we were selecting our own projects, of course, we were applying our efforts towards something that we uniquely cared about as individuals and as a small group when we were doing collaborative projects. And it was never hard, if that makes sense. Sorry, that's probably not the right way to phrase it. There were, there were challenging elements to it, but it wasn't like that struggle that you have to it knuckle down flowed. and sit in front of your textbooks. The, the, the challenge was, in the, was, in the, was such a satisfying challenge where you didn't quite have the skills and you had to like work your way through some particularly challenging circumstances, get some mentorship, recognize that you didn't necessarily have the skills, admit to that, ask for support. Man, it was so, it was so tra transformative for me. That's amazing. Um, wow. And in thinking about an educational experience at a high school level, one of my, one of my fundamental questions before even um, deciding to launch into the space was, what do the current teenagers of today, the future leaders of tomorrow, really care about? Because if we can identify a couple of areas, a couple of challenges that, that we see consistency in them and resonance with what they care about, and we can put that at the center of the learning experience, mm. my, my, strong, my strong hypothesis is that a lot of the learning becomes, almost takes care of itself. So we started a process um, where we surveyed and did focus groups and um, what we call market testing with students from all around the world, thousands of students, multiple continents across the world, trying to find, is there some golden thread that we can find in the causes and challenges that they care about? And Fred, the most staggering thing came back. And, and at first I couldn't quite believe it. Um, but then as I started going deeper and deeper, I found that there was, that this was absolutely the case. The leaders of tomorrow really care about making the world a better place, mm. not just lip service, not virtue signaling. Kids of today are actually showing through their time and effort that they want to make the world a better place. They mm. care about issues like climate change. They care about issues like social justice and inequality. And what was staggering the feedback was that they actually want a schooly experience which gives them a platform to engage in the challenges that they care about. And so this, this was just such a wonderful revelation for me that, that actually we could recontextualize this learning experience where students are learning, are applying the skills from areas like mathematics, geography, physics, chemistry, et cetera, and applying those to solving the world's biggest problems. And what we saw in, um, in this feedback was that the issues that they, that they raise are, match almost exactly to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. The SDGs. Wow. The SDGs, exactly. So what we've done at Valencia Institute is we've fundamentally focused the subjects around those SDGs. So you're still taking the traditional subjects. That's important for your university articulation and other things. But you're applying those in the context of the SDGs, of mm. solving real-world problems. Mm. And for me, coming back to this issue of creativity and, and entrepreneurship, Again, I think you've heard me say it, but I think that a lot of a lot of the confidence that we need to create entrepreneurs is around actually tackling problems, sure. coming up with creative solutions, having the confidence to actually try. And so at Valencia Institute, one of the, um, I guess, one of the key offerings that we have is what we call SDG Labs, where students are identifying real challenges in their local communities. They're then self-organizing, working collaboratively with their fellow peers mm. and actually tackling those challenges. Of course, they're supported by um, subject matter experts, by mentors, um, by project managers and so on who can help to assist them. But fundamentally, they need to grapple and actually solve real-world problems. Sure. The fact that the kids are... Tackling real problems within this environment of mentorship and so on is is just leading them to 
a place where I believe they will be so much more equipped to think of problems as opportunities, which in a, in a nutshell is what a, an entrepreneur does, Absolutely. right? So there's a foundational element to that learning process where I, I would imagine that you're fostering the future entrepreneurs. You know, I think so. And, and you like the word exposure therapy, so I'll use it again. <laughs> this is exposure therapy. It's developing the the confidence and the and the plethora of skills that come with cha- tackling challenges and, as you said, for, for entrepreneurs, opportunities. And I think that we have – that our kids are more capable than we necessarily give them credit for. Mm. And I think they're more inclined to solve and to actually start tackling these real problems than we give them credit for. And, yeah. uh, and I guess a very, very big part of Valencia Institute is creating that platform, giving them an opportunity to engage in solving real problems. You know, everyone has that one teacher that, you know, the John Keating that kind of made you carpe diem. And there's almost a mentorship quality to those individuals that they see something in you and they have such passion for the, the learning process. I guess this is maybe a crude question, but how do you scale that? Mm. Because that's such a fundamental thing and you know, to most people. Yeah. But but how are you tackling that, say at Valencia Institute yes. as an example? Absolutely. So I think one of the one of the realizations that I had back at Get Smarter was that I think that we ask we ask our teachers to do too many to fulfill too many functions. So think about a typical teacher in a traditional classroom. You are a subject matter expert, you're a curriculum designer. You're a learning facilitator. You're a marker. You're an administrator. You are sometimes a social worker. You're a mentor. I'm suddenly you're sorry to feel sorry for all those teachers I didn't like back at school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a crazy job description. Add to the fact that the pay is not particularly appealing. It's not surprising that we don't have enough inverted commas good teachers. Like it's an unreasonable job description. So one of the one of the things that we did quite early on at Get Smarter was we sought to to uh, disaggregate that role and to say let's break it up into its component parts and let's get experts in each one of those areas to provide those functions. And then the real job of work becomes how do you effectively coordinate the activity of all of those individuals to make sure that the student still receives a cohesive holistic experience. And so I could give you a lot of details on this, but I'll give you just the the basics. One of the things that we've done is we've disaggregated the role of a mentor from the teacher. And that teaching function is actually disaggregated into four other functions, but but that's kind of behind the scenes. The role of a mentor, so these are education psychologists who are working with students to help them develop their their psychosocial skills, their socio-emotional skills. Particularly for the students that we're engaging with who are teenagers, it's a very tumultuous time. Mm. And I have a firm belief that learning is fundamentally an emotional process on top of which mechanical processes are are added to. Mm. But if you don't have that emotional, um, I'm not even going to call it stability, if you don't have the emotional resilience and you haven't developed the, the right level of self re- self-reflection, introspection, um, setting your own, your own North Star, your own compass, it's very difficult on shaky ground then to ask students to make massive intellectual leaps, to take intellectual risks. And this is the mechanical part. Sure. That is a scary prospect if you don't have a strong emotional base. And real learning, Vygotsky would call the zone of proximal development, is in the sweet spot where you are stretching yourself to the point of discomfort, but you've got just enough skills to engage in the to engage in the in the subjects that, that, that you're trying that you're trying to. So you to. continue feeling like that challenge, almost like gamifying it's it, right? Very un- so learning is uncomfortable. If it's in that zone of proximal development, it mm. is uncomfortable, but that's where the maximum benefit comes from. But again, coming back to the point, that's built what I would believe is a good educational system that's built on a strong emotional base. 
And so our mentors at Valencia Institute work exclusively with students to develop that emotional base. It's also really important to us that we're working with the parents. I think that in the education system, too often parents are treated as stakeholders. That would be you. (laughs) Um, But stakeholders that once, at at best, once a term more regularly, once a year, you get to kind of have a face-to-face, bit of face-to-face time with the teacher. Maybe you get a report card on a quarterly basis. It's not a lot to go on. And parents are such critical stakeholders in the experience and the and the educational opportunities that, that we can create for students that we see it as our role to engage very closely with parents mm. um, and so it's another role of the mentors is to build that bridge and so to come back to your question it doesn't scale particularly well that's okay. one of the things that we've made a conscious decision this is not about leveraging mentors and getting them to be able to deal with 500 parents at once no this is a very personal, very intimate. But it's integral, right? Totally. And then we can focus our efforts in terms of scalability on other areas. Um, you'd mentioned um, just before we started the recording, flip classrooms. It's insane that we still think that the role of teachers is to stand up and to disseminate content. Can we just, for the context of the the listener, talk, talk about what that means? Mm. What is a flipped classroom? What does the concept mean? And Completely. why has it taken so blimmin' long <laughs> to, to implement in terms yeah. of the... So the concept of a flipped classroom is, is fairly straightforward. So in, in days gone by when knowledge was scarce, really the, the lecturer or the faculty standing at the front of a class, their role was to provide access to information, which was scarce. And you could only get by going to the academy or going to the institution. Then if you were really lucky, maybe that information got turned into some sort of experience, some sort of opportunity for application. But learning in the early days, let's not forget how much the world has changed literally in the last 200 years. Like Gutenberg's printing press was an absolute revolution. The fact that more people could get just access to information, the literacy levels could rise, was huge, absolutely huge. And yet, unfortunately, in, 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 the, in that era when the academy was initially established, that same modality has persisted throughout the age. So again, you go into a typical university hall, the lecturer is standing up front talking at a bunch of students, talking at them, giving yeah. them content. Making notes on the board, which can then be replicated in notebooks. Totally, totally. Sure. So the idea of a flipped classroom is, is no, 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 like we're, we're not in the 1800s anymore. We have more than enough access to information. What we want to do is we want to think about a, a classroom experience where students do their, let's call it their reading, their their content engagement beforehand. And then when we come to the classroom, now that's the opportunity to put the content to work, to put it to practice, to put students into small groups, to uh, make some sort of applied opportunity, to create some sort of problem-based opportunity for that. Um, perhaps to have a critical discussion, some sort of Socratic kind of round table around the information and different perceptions of that content. The flip classroom idea fundamentally is give the content beforehand, let the precious classroom time be about active engagement with that content. And the reasoning being that you internalize it so much more effectively and sustainably through those conversations, through those democratic exercises and through the engagement that happens within the classroom, as opposed to sitting and taking notes, going home, doing homework at home, which is just totally nonsensical because you're in a silo, you're individual, you're not really understanding it in a way that's that's locked in, right? You haven't kind of embodied it is is a way I think about it. Like you, you embody this content, you embody this information when you're applying it, when you're engaging in a very visceral way with people around you and the like and context that you find yourself so in. So you become part of that information Absolutely. and it, it really resonates. In terms of that conversation then, I mean, why is it not being adopted at a wide scale? 
it's quite a complex answer to that, so I'll do my best to give like the highlights. Sure. We've got to remember that the education is part of, particularly in, uh, in fact, in all countries, but education is is a political mechanism of some sort. And as a result, it is controlled politically. There are unions. There are, there are many layers of overhead. And the incentive to do something radically new is very, very low. Sure. Particularly when something is, is as politically driven as, as education. The primary incentive is try to create some sort of metrics which can show that you have done your job. And sorry, I'm not trying to... to, to point fingers at the incredible work that is done by certain educators, by certain politicians in this domain. There are some absolute heroes out there. But I believe we've got somewhat of a systemic challenge, which is fundamentally a, um, in opposition to real progress, to rapid change. So that's one piece. Another piece is teacher education. Teacher education has not changed nearly at the rate that one would expect relative to the rate of change that's happened in the rest of, in the, rest of the world. And if we don't get our teacher education right, it's not really surprising um, that we don't see radical radical changes in classroom practice. And is that not because things are changing so quickly that people are just they just paralyzed by the fact yeah. they don't know what's around the corner? I think that's definitely got to be part of it. I think that there's there's a lot of fear in that, and I think that um, that particularly for teachers who have been in the classroom for a very long time, who have typically, if you think about where we are now, most teachers who have risen up the system and are now um, headmasters and headmistresses and so on are typically around age 50, sometimes up to sure. up to 60 odd. The, the system that they have um, forged their ideals and ideologies in is it's one that is now effectively passed. You know, so it's. I, I think that when those are the leadership positions still held by schools, what are the chances that there's going to be a radical reformation in teaching methodologies? Like, it's pretty low, Fred. So where does that leave us? For us being in the marketplace, and we, you know, we want to learn, and I mean, we're effectively being handed a 250-year-old baton, right? So you want to go to business school, you're essentially sitting in an archaic system. And I mean, again, I agree with you. There's lots of institutions doing good things, but the reality is, I mean, even at an MBA level, you know, we're seeing record lows of adoption by corporates of those MBAs. It's just dipping and dipping and totally. dipping. So why even bother doing a, you know, entrepreneur education mm -hmm. that's based on this archaic way of thinking, these ideologies, right? You know, I think that it's uh, with, with very, very big problems with far-reaching implications, I think it's very easy to feel paralyzed and just do nothing about it. Because jeepers, if we don't solve every aspect of the problem, then why, why even start? And I think that that's an unfortunate way of, of viewing things. I think that there are small pieces of the puzzle that can be solved by individuals, that can be at, le at least where we can start to shift the needle as individuals. So yeah, I mean, I, if I think about it for myself at Valencia Institute, I think that that and on the idea of an online high school is not for everyone. It's not for every parent's delight. It's not for every. It's not going to meet the needs of every student. But there's an increasing body of students for whom this is exactly what they've been looking for. And our first cohort started at the beginning of this week, and it's been wonderful to see the adoption. I mean, yeah. really, really encouraging to see that. In fact, when another opportunity is placed in front of people, there's a surprising amount that will that will take that up. And 
yeah, it's a, it's a hard question to answer, Fred, but I, I feel like it's up to, up to each of us if we feel so compelled to play our small role. We don't have to solve the whole thing all at once and, and otherwise believe that we're not succeeding. Sure. I think what you're doing, and I, I love the fact you're coming in at, at that earlier level, fostering this, this, these future leaders, so to speak, to be able to tackle the, you know, the SDGs and the problems of the future, because that's essentially what we're going to be dealing with, right? Um, I want to talk then about the mental fortitude and the the kind of resilience from a a mental health perspective, because we're seeing, you know, I mean, not just in entrepreneurs and and leaders and managers, but across the board, this extraordinary rise in, you know, in mental illnesses and mental conditions, depression, anxiety, and so on and so forth. And, And in particular, when you have this really challenging environment of business, what are your views on that in terms of, first of all, from your own perspective, having run a highly charged business and you know being connected into the community in terms of dealing with these challenges going forward? Totally. So this is one of my favorite things to share, and I think it's unfortunate that, that more people don't. I see a psychologist every week, every single week, wow. and I think that it's the biggest gift that you can give to yourself. It's unfortunate that it still has a certain layer of stigma. It's literally how I start my week on a Monday. I think it's the most important thing that we can do. So I would I would say that our own psychological and emotional well-being as entrepreneurs precedes every other business metric that we could that we could consider. Sure. By being in a good headspace ourselves, by being able to wrap our heads around the very complex emotional um, social challenges that we find ourselves intersecting within the entrepreneurial game, sorting ourselves out is like number one priority. And I'd encourage any entrepreneurs out there, like go see a psychologist, go see a therapist. We have all got stuff guaranteed. Like I've got a lot of stuff and I grew up in a very stable, loving, loving sure. household and I've still got lots of stuff. Everyone has their wound, right? Totally. The and wounds that people deal with, right? They're bubbling under, they're mm-hmm. subconscious. And, and how do you think they affect you? Well, I think they play out then in weird and wonderful ways in the business context. So particularly, I mean, what you see often in the world of business is that that same strength and fortitude that allows entrepreneurs and kind of high performers to rise up can be the the other side of that of that sword is that that can be very big egos. That can be people who are... Um, firmly trying to establish their identity as a high performer, as a what, whatever the case may be. And the intersection of personalities in a business environment, I, I often think of it as if you treat it as such, it is the most supercharged environment in which you can grow emotionally. Mm. Because it is so hyper-concentrated in its challenges, in its efforts, in its stress, in its look at it from any angle you want. And the opportunity there, if you treat it as such, is that your own growth can radically be amplified by that experience. And I have a a personal kind of pet hate of this idea of work-life balance, that you've got to kind of like treat your work as something that you leave at the door and then you come home and that's when you can kind of do all your other stuff. No, no, no. Work is an opportunity for your whole self to arrive and to treat it as a another facet of being, as an integral facet of being. Sure. And you have the opportunity, again, if you treat it as such, to deal with any work-related challenges as a personal challenge. It is a personal challenge. And I think that the role of a psychologist or a good therapist as a partner for you in that process just couldn't be more important for entrepreneurs, particularly I, I in high-growth environments. I love that. I mean, I think there's a sense of accountability and vulnerability, but also honesty mm. around that in a, in, a, in a very safe environment to be 100% honest mm. is such a liberating experience, totally. right? 
I, I, to your point around the uh, work-life balance, you hear that so often as a as a goal to achieve and to strive for. And I agree with you; it's nonsense, and everything's interconnected. Totally. If you have a really, you know, terrible morning at breakfast table with your kids and everybody's fighting, you're going to take that with you to your first meeting, and that's just the way it is. That's how we were wired, Absolutely. right? So I, what I'm hearing you saying is that there's this, you know, we can talk practically around the learning and, and education of entrepreneurs, you know, from a very technical perspective, there's all the Swiss army knife tools totally. of entrepreneurship. You can get that all online, really. You can download it, you know, at, at, an, at an arm's length with your phone, but there is an internal learning process as well, totally. right? There's an internal learning process, and you know we've spoken about the role of that um, of creativity and so on, and the willingness to tackle problems. I'd say there's something else though: inspiration. And I think that this is one of the things that you guys do so well at Heavy Chef. In this journey, which is full of hard knocks and realignment of expectations and so on, the inspiration that comes from fellow travelers on the path sure. is huge. We're social creatures, and it's really, really helpful to see other members of the tribe mm. that are on the same path, that, that are grappling shared, with the same things, totally right? grappling with the same issues. Um, the successes are awesome. Another thing I've appreciated about you guys is not just focusing on the big highs. It's mm. not. That's yeah, like that's the failure stuff that's probably more important to, to talk about. It's the trench stories, the stuff that really you can learn from each other about, totally. right? So I guess there's a there's a peer learning that you're encouraging as well, right? Totally. To learn from other entrepreneurs, not to operate in silo. No, it's 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 a lonely enough journey anyway. Get link up, work through through organizations like Heavy Chef, like become part of a community. It's a yeah. it's a big deal. I agree with you. I, I mean, I think that's incredible. And and if you look at the hubs around the world that are really succeeding, those are the ones that also foster that sort of interpersonal totally. connection with people at your same level, right? How do you feel education and the way entrepreneurs are learning is changing? You know, throughout your experience at Get Smarter, obviously you're seeing this and, and you know, all the managers and corporates and the intrapreneurs and so on. But now having a, you know, this, this view of education as a whole, what are you excited about? What are the things that are really kind of inflect and, uh, and that you feel, okay, there's something going on that's stirring that's quite mm -hmm. exciting? Mm -hmm. I think the conversation of learning is coming up more and more as it relates to entrepreneurs. Um, you may well have heard this idea that the, the, the new skill is to be able to learn, unlearn, and relearn consistently yeah, throughout yeah, your life. Absolutely. And I believe that very strongly. It's yeah. like the world is changing so flippin' fast that if you think that you can learn something once and do an MBA and rest on your laurels on this like hallmark of achievement and, and knowledge that you have, you are just wrong, sure. like radically wrong. And I think that it's a it's quite an exciting time to be an entrepreneur and to be in the in the world of learning because it's never been more it's never been more pertinent to our experience as entrepreneurs. So yeah, I mean you spoke about the Swiss Army knife. There's a lot of mechanisms now to get the Swiss Army knife skills that you need. Maybe you're doing an online short course, maybe you're attending a webinar, maybe you're attending a, a seminar, maybe you are reading books and and of that are of interest, all of which is really important. Again, coming back to the key principle, though, I'd say that all of that is is only truly helpful if it's built on top of that willingness to actually go and put something out there and start small. Like it doesn't have to be a huge deal. Start small, but do something. I, I, I use the, the idea of writing a line of poetry and sharing it with a few people 
uh, almost tongue in cheek, but I mean it. Like, mm. start putting yourself out there. That's the that's the underlying resilience that we need to develop as entrepreneurs. I couldn't agree more. We we sitting we're living in a world where you've got to continually just test yourself. Just put put it, put yourself out there, and it's it doesn't need to be this massively you know impressive achievement right from the outset. Start at that first step, you know, and see how you go. Iterate, learn, and uh, and adapt. You have access to all these amazing people around the world, like um, you know Professor Rob Liu at at uh, Harvard, and uh, who's now the dean of of Valencia, uh, Chancellor so, at Valencia, yes, the, the, the Chancellor of Valencia, and and I mean, congrats on that. That's oh, amazing. You. Oh. And um, you've interacted with with educators around the world. What what are some of the or maybe the most salient advice uh, that you've you've received or take on board, and that you 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 take along on this journey with you. Mm. You know, it's been a it's been a great privilege. Um, yeah, working with these uh, top faculty from the highest ranked institutions around the world, I'd say that that of absolutely everything, it's humility. You see this in such a profound way within the academic environment. Sometimes people can rise um, to greatness without humility. But the academics that have done particularly well and have not just succeeded within the academy but also succeeded out in the in the real world, let's call it, mm. are those that have a, a very strong underlying degree of humility. And it's a quiet confidence. It's a it's a it's almost a recognition that at a particular level of intellect, you really know what you don't know. And it's a massive hole. <laughs> yeah. we, the, the second we think that we that we really understand something, it was Einstein that said that when we think that we understand something, it's the first sign that you know nothing at all. <laughs> and I think that it's just the most it's the most encouraging and wonderful thing to have had direct exposure to to a few individuals like that, and, and Professor Robert Liu being one of those individuals. Sure. He is, I mean, in terms of academic achievements, you, I mean, I sing a long song about exactly what he's what he's done, what he's achieved. Yeah. But there's a humility in that man, which is just absolutely it's 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 very inspiring. And that humility underpins so many other things, right? It's curiosity and totally. discoverability, and you know, the ability to actually see the world from a advantageous perspective rather than thinking you know everything, totally. right? I think that's really, really important. And and Rob, just once again, congratulations on all the achievements. Thank and you, I know that you're just on the start of this journey, mm -hmm. but uh, we're excited to come along the ride with you. Really appreciate it, Fred. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Healthy Business Show. If you love this podcast, do let us know via social media, tag at discovery underscore SA. Use the hashtag DSY Healthy Business. And please do rate us on your favorite podcast platform whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your shows. You can also find more shows on the Discovery website at discovery.co.za forward slash corporate forward slash podcasts. Creating better businesses with Discovery Business Insurance.